Amen. Please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to John's Gospel. Look at the end of chapter 4, starting in verse 43. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. And let me pray, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we want to meet you now and continue to worship as we receive the good news of who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would meet with us, that you would awaken our hearts and transform our minds, grant us faith where there is none, strengthen our faith where it's weak, do that work that only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us and among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word, that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so, Jesus performs this sign here, and um, there's always been a complicated relationship between signs and faith. The request for signs from God is a common human experience, something you see a lot in the scriptures, uh, Jesus interacting with people this way where they, they need to see some sort of sign, they request some sort of sign from him, uh, all, all through the scriptures, and and through human history, signs of God's presence. We, need, we, we ask for signs of God's presence or his favor or his, um, his guidance. Um, I like this, this little quote from Homer Simpson. Dear Lord, the gods have been good to me. For the first time in my life, everything is absolutely perfect just the way it is. So here's the deal. You freeze everything the way it is and I won't ask for anything more. If that is okay, please give me absolutely no sign. Okay, deal. In gratitude, I present you this offering of cookies and milk. If you want me to eat them for you, give me no sign. Thy will be done. <laughs> uh, maybe a bit more seriously, uh, biblically, in the book of Judges, uh, you've got Gideon, who is kind of a weak and frightened individual, uh, that God approaches and says, basically, you're going to be a judge. You're going you're to deliver the people of Israel from their oppression right now. And uh, Gideon had a hard time believing that. And so he says, if, if you're going to save Israel by my hand, 
please do this sign for me. And he pulls out the fleece, right? And he puts it on the, the floor and he says, um, if, this, if this fleece is wet <clears throat> in the morning, but all the ground around it is dry, then I'll know this, this is the sign I'm asking for you, right? Uh, and, um, and then the next day, when, when that happens, he says, okay, let me, let me just ask one more thing. Let's do that same thing again, but if the fleece is dry and all the surrounding ground is wet, then I'll know this is a sign from the Lord and you know, I'll know that your word is true. It's interesting that in that story, he asked for God's forbearance with him. He says, bear with me. I'm really sorry I have to ask this. Right? I'm sorry I have to ask for this sign the second time. He said, please don't get upset at me for asking for a sign here. That's interesting. He is somewhat aware of the fact that he is requiring something of God beyond his word. He's requiring something of God beyond his word before he will trust him enough to do what he says. Effectively, this means he sort of pretty much doubts God's word. He needs to see something to reinforce God's word. He needs a little extra help believing God's character or God's promises. And this is common, uh, I think, for a lot of us. We, We desperately need to know that God is, that he's real, and that he is good, and that he loves us, and he's got good in store for us. We desperately need to know these things. We instinctively think that the best way to achieve real certainty about that is to set up a deal. Set up a deal. God provides the sign, and I'll respond with my faith. I'll actually trust now. It's a recurrent theme in the Gospels. This is a good question that that a lot of people ask. How can we know that Jesus is from God? How can we know that? How can we really be sure that he represents God's character and God's motives? Of course I'd follow him. Of course I'd trust him if I could be sure that he came from God. So what sign do you give us that you come from God? Uh, Leslie Newbegin has a um, great commentary on John's Gospel probably the one I'm leaning on most heavily for its insights. He's got a quote uh, that I've got at the beginning of the bulletin there for you. But <clears throat> he says that a belief which requires signs and wonders is one which lays down in advance the conditions which are required to authenticate any alleged revelation of God. It is thus guilty of putting the constructions of the human imagination often a very pious imagination, in the place of God. The belief is not a response to God as he actually reveals himself, for God's revelation may completely contravene our predetermined view of what God must be and do. It's a projection of our own imagination. The demand for a visible sign means that the one who makes the demand keeps ultimate sovereignty in his own hands. He has prescribed the tests by which divinity must prove itself. So the demand for signs and wonders is refused. God refuses to play that game. Asking for signs, see if we can plug this into our own hearts and experience a little bit more. Asking for signs is often a way to dictate the rules of the game to God. It's a way to require God to fulfill my terms before I'll give him what I think he wants. 
before I'll follow him or trust him and obey him, right? It's a way, asking for signs is a way to impose our criteria for making a favorable judgment of God, which ultimately is, is me saying, I'm going to be the judge here, and God, I will judge you based on your performance, based on whether you meet my expectations that I've set out for you clearly here, right? We can do this with our everyday prayer requests. This doesn't have to be some kind of once-in-a-lifetime magical moment where you're asking for a sign from God on this big, huge deal. We do this with our everyday prayer requests. We make our trust contingent on whether we get what we want. Only believing that God is good or God really loves us if he meets our conditions for proving it to us. If he if he loves me in a way that makes sense to me, because I, I set that out as, you know, the way that you're going to love me is this. And I'll respond well to that if you do that. Right? <clears throat> I'll believe you, I'll love you, I'll follow you and obey you if you live up to my demands. This can be in the back of our minds, I think, when we pray for important things like health for ourselves. Or maybe even especially health, uh, health for our loved ones. Uh, loved ones that are suffering, we pray for their health, or, or jobs, the provision of basic necessities. This kind of thing can be in the back of our minds when we're asking for deliverance from enslaving sins, deliverance from addictions. Um, we're saying, these things are super important to me, and if God's really there, and if God really loves me, then obviously he'll take care of things like this. It's sort of a no-brainer that he'd want to do that, right? And then obviously, then, it would make perfect sense to trust him and obey him if he takes care of these things that are kind of no-brainers. <clears throat> but then, when prayers like these appear to go unanswered, then what do you do? What do you do with that? It starts to shake your faith. You start to have doubts about God's presence or uh, your doubts about his favor begin to grow. Uh, this, this last week, um, three days I was up in uh, Seattle for Presbytery, the meeting with all the pastors from our region and um, went to a, a pub a couple times with a few of the guys, a few of the other pastors and um, struck up a conversation with the owner of the pub and she started talking with us. Um, she's an older woman, a Catholic woman. And um, she started talking with us and found out that we were Presbyterian ministers. And the first thing she said was, it's okay, I forgive you, because she's Catholic. And then, um, and then she began sharing just out of the blue some really deep, painful stuff going on in her, in her life and throughout her whole life. I mean, we got a lot of her life story. She's Catholic. Over the years, uh, she, she prayed for a lot of people. Um, she says she prayed the rosary over a lot of people who were sick, and they all got better. But then she began to suffer in certain relationships, that, and these relationships lasted for years and years, and did not end well. And she was praying about these relationships and praying about her involvement in these relationships, and God didn't fix that stuff. And God didn't didn't fix the pain, he didn't fix the relationships, and now she's got deep regrets, and she's just got a lot of pain and lack of closure. And here, you know, she's prayed for these people who were sick, they all got better. 
I pray for these things that are, that are so important and so central in my life, these relationships, and it feels like God failed her, so she came to the conclusion that God didn't exist. And that's what she's been telling people. Because he didn't live up to her expectations here with regard to these very important things. You've got to realize that this happens because we set up a deal with God. We're setting up a bargain with God. His signs for our faith. He meets my demands. I give him what he wants. I will trust and follow him if he lives up to my standards and fulfills my expectations, which are clearly laid out here. <clears throat> and basically what we're doing, again, kind of referring to Newbigin's quote there, is that we're insisting that I will, sovereign, I, I will sovereignly set up the criteria for the judgment of God. Of course, this is a terrible way to relate to God. It's, it's really not what we're supposed to be doing. Um, you can't demand signs of him. You can't call for him to meet your criteria if you're going to put your faith in him. Not if you really want to have a relationship with him. Not if he's a real person who's really revealed himself and you want to have a real relationship with him based on who he is and know him and be assured of who he is and be assured of his presence and be assured of his favor. Setting up deals and bargains is just not the way we should do it. Jesus himself is clearly critical of that approach to knowing God. There's a little foreshadowing that goes on uh, as we get into our passage here in verse 44. In the parenthetical statement, it says, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So as he's going back, he's gone from Judea in the south, and he's gone through Samaria, and he's spent a couple days there, and after those two days, he heads north to his home region, Galilee, his hometown, right? And here's this parenthetical statement that has a little bit of foreshadowing. This is set up here uh, so that we get the idea that whatever seems to be happening in Galilee, ultimately we're not talking about people truly honoring Jesus. That's, that's not what we're going to see, no matter what it looks like on the surface. Right? They don't honor him in his hometown. The next verse says that all the Galileans came out and welcomed him. They welcome him, sort of like the people of Lake Town in The Hobbit. They welcome the dwarves to their town, not for any true appreciation of dwarves, but because of the benefits they imagine they'll get for themselves if they welcome the dwarves and send them happily on their way so they can go conquer and take the mountain and share all these riches with us. That's, that's what's in their mind. Is that ultimately, I benefit out of this. Right? So we're going to welcome you. The Galileans welcomed Jesus because, it says, they had seen. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. That's an important word, seen, in the Gospel of John. He can do signs and wonders. We've seen it for ourselves. We judge these things to be good for us, so we approve. Thumbs up. He's our guy because he can do cool stuff for us. Similarly, later in the Gospel, it's because Thomas saw the resurrected Christ, right? because he demanded to see the resurrected Christ, and it's because he saw the resurrected Christ that he believed, and Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Right? So there's something about our expectation to see miraculous signs 
There's something about that expectation that Jesus thinks shouldn't factor into our faith as much as it does. The demand to see signs from God shouldn't factor into our faith as much as it does. That's what Jesus thinks, especially if we require them from God as proof of his goodness before we'll place our faith in him, before we'll follow him. Uh, so in verse 46, a royal official comes. Uh, that's, uh, I think the text is just translated official, but it's got the sense of uh, royal, royal official comes, and that means he's uh, probably affiliated with the Roman government in some way. A royal official comes to Jesus from Capernaum to ask him to heal his son. So, again, he's probably an important man, uh, probably in the Roman government, presumably then a Gentile, presumably not a Jew. So here we've got a little bit of a trace through the Gospel of John to this point where Jesus' movement from Judea, the heart of Jerusalem and Judaism, moving up through Samaria to kind of the half-breeds, right, and then out and encountering Gentiles as he goes further away. Um, but that's all part of his mission. That's all part of his plan. He takes that and um, he, he, that's where he wants to go. So presumably this, Jew, this Gentile, uh, this, this royal official, uh, someone who's, whose allegiance to Rome would probably normally prohibit him, normally keep him at a distance from Jewish rabbis. They're just not running in the same circles. Jewish rabbis probably won't have nothing to do with royal officials like this. Um, but something very urgent has come up. Very urgent in this man's life. Something very important. His son is about to die. He's got some kind of fever. Right? And this man obviously cares very much for his son because he leaves him not knowing if he's going to miss his death. Put yourself in the story. That's kind of the sense you get. There's this, this urgency, but it's compelling. that He, he leaves him. Uh, and treks 18 miles, uh, which is probably just an overnight trip when on foot in that area in that, in that time. Uh, 18 miles with basically a fool's hope that Jesus might be able to help because he's heard about Jesus. Right. Sadly, this kind of desperation, it's desperate, right? I mean, it's kind of familiar to us. I think it's, uh, it's unfortunate that it's familiar to most of us. We've had a dying relative, a dying friend, someone who's um, in poverty, someone who's destroying their lives or their, their relationships through their choices, things that just seem really urgent, really desperate, that we really care about. And we rightly bring these to God in prayer in the name of Jesus. And this official might be expressing at least the beginning of a faith like that. He might be expressing the beginning of a faith like that. But Jesus, uh, when this guy asks him for help, he grinds things to an awkward halt, doesn't he? By saying, unless you people see signs. This is plural language. He's not, he's not just talking to the, the Roman official. He's talking to everyone around, really. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll not believe my dear child is suffering and about to die and you've got the power to heal him and apparently have been willing to do things like this for others and I've made this great effort to bring this urgent matter to your attention, this thing that obviously you should want to fix. And you're giving me a lecture on faith now? Is Jesus doing it wrong? Maybe we should place our imagined uh, indignation 
on hold. Apparently, Jesus is very concerned with our faith. Apparently, he's very concerned with our faith. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to believe that he reveals God to us. He wants us to believe that he reveals that God is good and that God loves us. And he is a bit abrupt with this desperate father. Just as he was a bit abrupt with his own mother in John 2, or as he is a bit abrupt with several others throughout the gospel who come to him with urgent needs, this happens a lot. People have urgent needs, and it seems like he's just changing the subject, derailing it, delaying it unnecessarily in order to talk about things like faith. Jesus puts those urgent needs in perspective, and he rearranges our priorities. He's the one that rearranges our priorities. Which do you think is more urgently important? This dying child's life or the teaching moment about faith? Let me ask it a little differently. Which do you think is more important, your loved ones or the knowledge of the beloved? Or which do you think is more important, your child or the knowledge of God's child? the knowledge of God's own son. The one true God thinks there's no question about this. He thinks the answer to that should be pretty clear. And he's willing to interrupt your life and even create friction in really desperate, urgent places in your life. He's willing to create friction and ignore your expectations and ignore your demands on him in order to reveal himself truly to you as, it, as, as he is. He's God. Jesus Christ is the center of the universe, not your urgent needs, not even your most important cares in this world. Jesus Christ is the center of the universe, and you can't make demands of him, not even subconsciously. Like, well, if he values what I value, of course, I give him a thumbs up. Or... If he saves my child or provides for me or fixes my problems, of course. I'll trust him. I'll believe that he's there and that he's good and he cares for me. And, and I'll follow him. Jesus isn't trapped. He's not constrained. He's not forced to give you what you want or what you say you need just so that you will believe in him. He doesn't play your game. That's, that's what we should take away from this pause, this aside, in the middle of this urgent situation. He doesn't play your game. He calls it for what it is. Unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. And he thinks there's something wrong with that. Here's the good news, though. He wants you to believe that God is, and that God is good, and that God loves you, because that's true. And there's nothing more true, and God has insisted on it. He's revealed that about himself. He has said it. He has spoken it over and over again throughout the, the course of redemptive history, throughout the scriptures. Here's this desperate, confused official with the beginnings of weak faith, probably, who all he can say in response to this is to confess Jesus as Lord and ask him for help. That's what he does. It says, sir, in this translation. I don't know why the, the word is Lord, um, just as, uh, as it usually is translated from Greek into English, Lord, in the Gospels. Lord, 
Here's a Roman official, a royal official, who's used to calling Caesar Lord. Lord, come down and help him before he dies. I don't know what to ask for. No demands, no deals, a plea for mercy. To one that he's starting to get the idea. He believes he's God, and he believes he's good. He's got the inkling of that weak faith, right? He believes he's good. It's a plea for mercy. And God's son reveals himself to be the one who is good, who truly cares freely. Not constrained by your demands. Freely. He's not compelled to live up to popular opinion. He's not compelled to win favor. To do cool tricks so that people would give him applause. That's not what this is about. He freely loves because this is who God really is. He loves and he cares. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. So in spite of the fact that we all make demands of him, every single one of us makes demands of him that put ourselves in the place of the sovereign one who's going to determine how this relationship goes. In spite of that, he condescends to help and to show mercy and to heal and answer prayers. And that's what's at, this is what is at the heart of this story, really, and I think we all really need to see it, not just the fact, not just the fact that the official got what he wanted and that this good thing happened. Not just that fact that his suffering was taken away as his son was healed. You need to see what kind of God Jesus reveals to us. He's a God who freely loves. No constraints on him, no demands. He's not living up to your expectations He loves you anyway. He's the God who's free from your sign faith deals, your bargains. He wants you to know that he he is, that he blesses, that he gives, that he helps, that he loves. He is the sovereign one, not you. And he condescends to care for people who would use them to get what, what they want. Use him to get what they want. He condescends. He gives you everything. He showers you with grace. He loves you. He takes care of you. He provides for you. Because he is good and he wants you to know him, to trust him and thank him and live with him and for him, and it really would be best if you took him at his word for all of this. It would be best if you took him at his word for who he is and what he's like. That's what it means when he tells Thomas later, again, uh, Jesus saying, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. They took me at my word, and they've believed. That's better than requiring some kind of sign faith deal. In fact, this official's faith looks a little bit like that because the man, it says explicitly, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So, again, Newbegin says, Without a word, he turns on his heel and goes. This is an action of belief. It is true belief because it is based on the word of Jesus, not on visible signs. And because it is, at the same time, obedience to that word. So he hadn't seen Jesus heal his son yet. He trusted Jesus' word to him, and he acted on it. That's the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for, one that isn't contingent upon visible signs, that doesn't make demands of God, but that humbly responds to the word of God, the revelation of God, the scriptures, Jesus' voice, 
one that humbly responds to the word of God with trust and obedience. And this man's faith was helped. It was really helped by Jesus' willingness to condescend and heal his son. And when he saw it, it says, he and his whole family believed. Right? You get the idea. He believed even more. Got greater assurance of who Jesus is and what he's like. But the essence of true faith is a responsiveness and even a submission to his word. That's the essence of true faith. That's what we've had given to us. That's what each of us has heard, his word about himself. And true faith means responsiveness to that, not a demand for signs. The serpent in the garden called God's word into question. He cast doubt on it. It's the first thing that he did. Did God really say? What do you think he means by that? What do you think is really going on inside of God's heart when he tells you to do something like that? Can't be, can't be good. Right. He casts doubt on God's word and the restoration of our trust in God's word, in his character, in his intentions as revealed in his word, as revealed in the one who is the word, Jesus Christ. The restoration of our trust in that, that's the, that's the work of the gospel. In Christ, God demonstrates himself to be worthy of our trust. He does it in a lot of different ways. In Christ, he demonstrates himself to be trustworthy, ultimately not because of miracles where people have their urgent needs met. Right? There's a lot of times when people have their urgent needs met. They're healed or loved ones are healed and they don't respond to Jesus the way that we think they really should with faith and becoming disciples, being baptized and following Jesus, right? Ultimately, he demonstrates himself to be trustworthy not because of miracles like this, like the healing of the official's son who's at the brink of death, but because of the absolute cosmic goodness of God that we see in the life and death and resurrection, especially of his own son after the brink of death. This son doesn't quite make it to death. Later, Jesus raises a guy who did die, and he raises him now. Now we know because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he himself has been raised from the dead, and it demonstrates the absolute cosmic goodness of God when that happens. God is the kind of God who is repairing everything. Everything that's been broken in our relationship with him, everything in the whole world. He's begun it, he's doing it, and he will accomplish it. He's repairing everything through the sacrifice and resurrection through the person of his own son. Everything's being set back right. All, all the wrong is being undone. Through Christ, he has made provision for people like you and me, People who imagine that we can set up deals with God, that we can bargain with God, make him beholden to us. He's got he's to do our tricks before we'll put our trust in him. Through Christ, he's made provision for us to enter into the pure goodness of a relationship with him that lasts forever. People like us. In light of this gospel in light of how God reveals himself in his son, in light of how he shines forth his goodness and his love to people like us that's clearly seen in, in his word, you should really wrestle 
with yourself and ask these questions and promote these questions among one another and your friends. People need to wrestle through stuff like this. These are the things we need to wrestle through. What demands do I place on God for my faith? What, what answers to prayers? Which prayers are demands of God if I'm going to believe in him and, and respond to him with faithfulness? What demands do I place on him? What do I need to see from him before I trust and obey him? Do I take him at his word? Or do I subtly believe his word isn't enough? I've got to see some things in my life. They've got to play out this way according to my expectations. Do I find real assurance about who God is? Real assurance. Do I find real assurance about his intentions toward me in the good news of Jesus Christ? Do I understand the good news of Jesus Christ? Do I understand it to be a full and dependable disclosure of God's very nature? That there's, there's nothing hidden in God behind Jesus. That Jesus is the perfect disclosure of God, of who he is and his intentions. Do I understand the gospel to be saying that? Does this word of God mean enough to me that I'm willing to stake my life on it? Stake my eternity on it? Is this good word of God sufficient for me to trust him and follow him and live in happy submission to him? Those are the kinds of questions that we and everyone we know should all be asking ourselves uh, with frequency. Not just once at the beginning of the Christian life, but we all need to ask these kinds of questions of ourselves continually. Do I take him at his word? God has a lot of patience and grace toward us to invite us to wrestle through these things. We should do that together. We should do that together. Come talk to me, talk to other Christians here. I think that would be a beautiful way for you to respond to God's word in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, you have sent your Son, who is your very word, into this world to reveal yourself to us for our life with you. Jesus is apparently all we need to, uh, to trust that you are real and that you really are good and that you really do care for us and love us and want what is best for us. It's hard for us even to imagine those things apart from our own desires and expectations and demands that we instinctively place on you. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ in a way that uh, overwhelms all those things and um, uh, helps us to pray differently praying for uh, a deepening in our relationship with you, but not demanding certain signs or the fulfillment of our expectations for us to grow in our faith and love. We pray that you would meet us where we are and have patience with people like us. And yet we pray that you would make it clear to us in our hearts and in our minds who you are as revealed to us in the person of your Son in the Holy Scriptures, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table.